Welcome to Death and Desserts, where we discuss the dark, disturbing, and beautiful elements of death whilst eating dessert. I'm Sana. And I'm Saria. And today we are discussing green burials. Today's dessert are apple turnovers from Barber's Orchard. If you would like to see what we are eating, check out our Instagram at Death and Desserts Podcast, where we have also tagged the fruit stand. Alright, so I belong to a weird little group on Facebook called Obsessed with Death. I shouldn't say I belong to. I'm in it. I never post and I almost never comment. And somebody mentioned this town in Colorado. So I looked it up and it's all legit, totally real. In Crestone, Colorado, you can have an open air cremation. Mm-hmm. They have built this little temple on top of a mountain and in the center of it is a pyre, and they feed the fire for about four hours continuously. It's hot enough to do the job. Everything is cremated at the end. It takes about four hours, I think they said. Maybe it was longer than that. It started in the early 2000s. They had noticed a, an uptick, a trend of private open-air cremations in Colorado, because Colorado has very few rules of any kind for this position. And so when they noticed this trend, they decided to make it a thing. And Stephen Allen and Angelique Farrow donated land and they got all their permits and stuff. And the first open air cremation was done at Dragon Temple in January of 2008. And they even have little copper plaques on the poles creating the wall that have the name, birth, and death date of the people that have been cremated there. That's very cool. And they have little designs on it. It's really pretty. (laughs) I really love it. That could be an option for me. I think about cremation sometimes, and I am always concerned about the same thing wherein due to my body weight, I'm going to burn down a crematory, you know? They have to oh, they have to cremate obese people at different times to avoid catching the stuff on fire for real. I wonder if that has the same risks. I mean it's an open fire safer. Yeah, I imagine that would be safer. Okay. Fat people of the world <laughs> We have options. So, yeah. It's called the Crestone End of Life Project in Crestone, Colorado. Very cool. How's that turnover? So, uh, I only took one bite and I didn't get a lot of apple. Let me, let me do this again. Mm, There's something about apples. I love apples. Everybody's like, pumpkin spice during the fall. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. get you some apple spice. (laughs) They're big too. Mm -hmm. They're not overtly greasy. I just, I love them. They're really good. They're really good. And their apples still have like... A bite to them. Mm-hmm. They're not complete mush. I love it. So I'm really glad that we did this research because I have never, ever wanted to be in a cemetery in the ground right. with a headstone taking up more space. Like, mm-hmm. I love cemeteries and I love the architecture and the art and the history, but I don't want to add to mm-hmm. basically the problem. <laughs> I think that's when we are graveyard hunting. We always gravitate to the old ones. Mm. You know, we're, I, at least I've never been with you to a more modern one. But these Those headstones tend to be boring. <laughs> right, they are boring. And, and they're very, you know, cookie cutter. And mm-hmm. So, for the most part, the graveyards that we picnic at and everything have been established for hundreds of years before we were. Yeah. It kind of doesn't feel as grotesque in a way. I don't know. <laughs> I can't explain so today we're kind of discussing natural burials in conjunction with traditional modern funerals and we can't really do that without discussing when the natural burial seemed to kind of shift into our modern practices especially in regards to embalming so it's clear when i was doing the research that the modern funeral industry wasn't always a billion dollar business practice most of that was largely shaped by the Civil War. The Civil War shaped most of our current state of body preservation and it did that because the number of Civil War dead was greater than all the other American conflicts combined until Vietnam. The Army had absolutely no infrastructure to handle 
that amount of deceased, and they didn't have at that time national cemeteries, they didn't have burial details on the people that they were losing, they didn't have messengers to be delivered to talk about the loss that the families had had, they didn't have any of that. But they did have one doctor by the name of Thomas Holmes, and though different cultures had obviously been practicing embalming in some form or way as early as like 5000 BCE in what is now Chile and Peru, it wasn't that common in the United States until the Civil War. Dr. Holmes was commissioned by the Army to embalm all of these corpses of the dead Union workers to their families, and the military authorized private embalmers to work in areas under military control. So that kind of started to shift our idea of embalming, which was still very rare in this country. The death and funeral of Abraham Lincoln further revolutionized the way we would think about funerals and especially embalming, because he was the first public figure to be put on display, and since he was displayed for almost three weeks... Yikes! Yeah, he had to be embalmed. I mean, even with the embalming, that's... I know. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So, being able to view his body for such an extended amount of time without him being on ice would actually contribute largely to the shift of modern funeral services. So by 1882, the job title undertaker would be replaced with the title funeral director, and the concept of embalming was no longer seen as a desecration, but at that point as a professional service that would sanitize and disinfect the body. Embalming would allow the body to look more natural and merely sleeping as opposed to decomposing, and slowly social views would kind of continue to shift at that point. Also around this time, the funeral industry would actively change the association of the word parlor as a room in your private home to being in a funeral home, i.e. a funeral parlor. Mm -hmm. It gave society a way to no longer connect their home parlors as places associated with death where they would lay their family for visitation and right. wakes and whatnot. That way, the modern parlor would be rebranded as a living room, i.e. a room for living. And then the funeral industry complex was revitalized and the foundation for the funeral industry to be the most expensive and corporate industry in the world was laid at that point. It's just kind of crazy to me that it didn't shift back after a while because, I mean, I can understand using it during the Civil War because of the amount of travel that some of the bodies were doing, but... It makes sense, but then why didn't we go back to more natural burial? Right? I mean... We have only discussed Europe so far and modern practices, and embalming is very rare over there. It is. In Canada and the United States, it's still huge. It's, like, so normalized. It, exactly. Normalized. Taken for granted. Like, I just assumed everybody was embalmed, and I didn't think that you had a choice in the matter. Right. Well, it's the same thing as we'll discuss when we're talking about green burial options and stuff. It's like you're aware that it exists, so in a way, you're aware that not being embalmed could be an option, but you don't really think about it. It's just an automatic box that you tick off when somebody dies, and you never consider an option. I mean, this whole time I've been wondering, at one point, do bodies become unpleasant if they're not embalmed? Because some of the, the European countries take a minute or two to get to... Right their funerals and I guess they're refrigerated until then. Well they're probably refrigerated but also in our research I'm sure you found the same thing with some of your options that we're going to go through. A lot of them depend like there's no real hard and fast rule about how quick decomposition takes. It's true. Yeah you know, because soil conditions, how humid is it, mm -hmm. how far are they buried, you know blah blah blah. What's already crawling around in your body. Exactly. So Maybe in some countries, maybe it's an equator thing, like, the closer you get, to, it's like, no, 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 we have to, so that it would make sense that if you were to place in, I don't know, Greenland, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Right. I don't know, maybe it's. Because I think, didn't the ones that take the longest were the Swedish people? And you know they've got them refrigerated. Right. <laughs> you just take open a door, it'll be fine. But for real, yeah, I think it. It may just depend on your locale, but also, so that brings up the interesting thing, like Canada, I know that Canada's not like the North Pole, but still, Canada is just as embalmy as we are. We're on that. I think it's just because they live above us. Right. And we 
influenced. I personally think that we influence them more than they influence us. I really wish it was the other way around. I was about to say, <laughs> but uh, but I do think because Americans are just straight up skeezed out by the idea of unembalmed bodies. Yeah, we have, we just cannot do. Yeah, at some point it became like the the collective narrative that embalmed bodies were like cleaner, you know. It's sanitized. You're not getting the dead jerk, you know, whatever. I mean, I guess that's true, but most pathogens... Anyway. <laughs> so I have a few little snippets to go over. Yes, we... why, why do we need <laughs> to shift away from this again? And then, and then, when we wrap that up, we'll get into our options. So, cremation uses about 30 gallons of fuel, which is enough to drive from L.A. to San Francisco and back. I don't have the exact numbers on how much carbon dioxide it creates, but it is a lot. Uh, traditional burial options are not that much better. They're also harmful to the environment. Every year, traditional burial uses 20 million feet of wood, 4.3 million gallons of embalming fluid, and 1.6 million tons of reinforced concrete that's all put straight into the earth. Besides polluting the soil, it also consumes valuable urban land and contributes to climate change through resource-intensive manufacture and transport of caskets, headstones, and grave liners. Oof. That's a lot of embalming that's fluid. That's a lot. It is just straight into the waterways and everything. That's well, I do remember hearing something about how embalming fluid does break down itself mm -hmm. as well and so like its shelf life it kind of neutralizes before mm -hmm. it gets to soil i've heard embalmers and funeral directors being like okay calm your tits about this whole toxic thing but at the same time of course they would say that they would say <laughs> that because that brings me to a good point when i was researching embalming fluid and stuff i found a little snippet from the cdc research that says and this is according to the CDC, I'm not just making it up. Embalmers have a higher death rate of 13% due to the risk of inhaling vapors of embalming fluid. Yo. They also have an eight times higher risk of contracting leukemia. That is according to the Journal of Natural Cancer Institute in a 2009 study. Now, I know 2009 is not just yesterday, but still, it's not like 70s info. That's right. still pretty on, on target. And also, according to the 2015 Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry, embalmers have a three times higher risk of contracting ALS and other autoimmune and neurological diseases due to being around embalming fluid. That is bananas. And that I know bananas. that it's their job, and so of course they're around, you know, staggering amounts of it every day, but that is going into the soil. Mm -hmm. That is. Even if, you know, there's vault liners and caskets and whatnot, it does eventually make it into the soil, which is why cemeteries have to be 300 feet away from water. I think it is 300. That doesn't feel like enough anymore. No. <laughs> no. Isn't Riverside literally next to French Broad? Yeah. <laughs> I think... Of course, I didn't take out my... Right? Well, know. I haven't been there in a while, and I'm trying to picture where the river is. It's But it's called Riverside. <laughs> Along with this, states don't have laws requiring caskets or vaults, but they do try to regulate the burial depth because that, you know, as it relates to the public general good. The primary goal of a green burial isn't to protect the body, but to aid in its impact on the environment. In the state we live in, there are no laws prohibiting home burial, and it's legal to have your loved one's body at home after they die. Our state doesn't require you to involve a licensed funeral director in making or carrying out arrangements. Um, oh, and you mentioned how you have to be 300 feet from a water supply. You also have to be, in North Carolina at least, at least 18 inches below the surface of the ground. Huh. And in our state, you have, we have no embalming requirements, and there is no state law that specifies a time frame within which you must dispose of human remains. We'll go North Carolina. Right. So when my husband's grandfather, not his dad's dad, but his mom's dad, when he passed on, he was buried in his yard. Mm -hmm. But he lived in Cherokee, and his wife was Cherokee, his second wife. So I assumed that was just... A Cherokee thing, thing. Mm -hmm. but it turns out no, it's just North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So that's cool to know. I didn't know. It is cool to know. Obviously, each cemetery will have its own policies regarding natural burial. Um, 
you have mentioned a couple times the green burial site in Leicester? Mm-hmm. Candler. Um, is, so is it separate from the it normal is. part? Mm-hmm. The normal part. The traditional part? Yes. Have you ever been inside of it? Yes, I didn't know where I was. I was like, where's <laughs> Okay, so there's no headstones. Yeah, I had no idea there weren't going to be headstones. Mm-hmm. I was like, so maybe they just haven't used it yet. But they have. I got you. Like, it's just a swath. It's just a meadow of grass. Um, because headstones and everything like that, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose. It totally does. So, yeah, I, I, because I didn't understand at the time when I went there, I thought it was just, it hadn't, people hadn't started using it yet. But there could have been tons of people in there and I just had no idea because that's not how it, it is done. Right. When I, when I was kind of researching North Carolina especially because you know, I'm like, hey, I need to know what my options are. Right. I was reading more about conservation firms that were had been recently trying to establish conservation cemeteries around here, but every article I found repeated the same stuff over and over again, wherein the different zoning and state laws would prohibit them from creating such cemeteries. In North Carolina especially, it said that some of the efforts failed because, especially for ones that did not want mutual, um, traditional and natural cemeteries, they just wanted plain conservation cemeteries, that like state law and zoning would would require them to like put a paved road all the way through the property. And so they're like, well, we can't do that. That defeats the purpose. And so they would just, like, get stonewalled. And that's why there's not that many natural cemeteries here. Yep, there are three in Asheville, so including the one in Candler. Mm. Or, I'm sorry, maybe just the Asheville area, because I think one of them is in Mills River. I gotcha. So I wonder how, how many times that is the thing, where, you know, okay, you can get away with having a road near a natural one. It goes right up to it, like I was walking on said road, but it doesn't go through the part where they yeah. bury everybody. So I assume if somebody was just making a conservation cemetery completely untouched by traditional methods, they wouldn't want to put a road right through the whole piece of property. That right. would ruin the whole point. Um, also, did you know that there is no organization that has or has kept a comprehensive database of all of the state and local cemetery laws. So in 2019, they had a survey from the Funerals Directors Association, and more than 50% of Americans polled expressed interest in a green burial option. So it's obvious that people know what a green burial is, or at least a lot of people do. They just don't know how to go about it, or they just think that it's unobtainable. That makes perfect sense to me, because, you know, the funeral directors want to get their money. Exactly. And most green burials would be less expensive mm-hmm. than traditional. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's big funeral, man. It is big funeral. <laughs> so that leaves us with our types of burial options that are earth-friendly. Most of these involve the use of biodegradable materials, like simple pine boxes or wicker basket funerals, or even just fabric shrouds. And most common room burials are just shallowly dug graves that allow the body to recycle naturally. We're going to talk about terramation and aquamation, which aquamation was a thing I didn't know until you told me about it. And both of those seem to be growing very slowly, but we'll see. And yeah, so let's get into it. Okay, then I I would like to start with... Please! Aquamation is fucking fascinating. So I kind of had heard about it before, but then my one of the lactation consultants that helped me when my son was born, Laura, mentioned it in mommy group one day. She was like, "Oh, there's this thing, and you can, and it's water, and it's a big tank." And I was like, "Okay, okay, I'll look it up. I'll look it up." And so I did. I also had a friend mention it to me, but I'm so scatterbrained, and they didn't tell me the term, so. I, I don't, maybe Laura said the word aquamation? I don't remember. But, yeah, when I googled it, it was like, aquamation is the term you're looking for. I was like, oh, okay. Tell me more. Okay. So, let's start with the process. It is, the actual process, aquamation is a, a fun name for it and everything, and it indicates what's going on, I guess. Right, aqua, aqua, um, yeah. But the actual process is called alkaline hydrolysis. Okay. And the body is placed in a stainless steel vessel 
either naked or clothed in protein-based clothing, like silk or leather or something like that, mm-hmm. or put in a bio bag that is made of biodegradable stuff, depending on the state regulations. Mm-hmm. Then lye, basically, alkali, is mixed in with the water. I forgot how many gallons of water are used. I want to say it's like 97 gallons or something. That's a lot of water. It, it's a lot of water. And the solution is 95% water and 5% alkali adjusted for weight and gender and stuff like that. I don't know why sex of the body. I find that interesting. I don't know why there's the adjustment. I, I need to look into that. <laughs> yeah, I even have a question mark because it says that the ratio depends on weight and sex and embalming status. And I was like... What does your sex have anything to do with this? I'm so curious. I could get height or something. Maybe that's it because men are typically taller, supposedly. Or denser. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I personally think a BMI would work just fine without worrying what junk they have. Um, But I'm not an aquamation technician, so I don't know. Uh, The solution is then heated to 200 to 300 degrees, and the solution is gently circulated through the vessel, and there's also pressure involved. Basically, they're pressure cooking. (laughs) That gave me a very disturbing visual. I mean, it kind of looks like a pressure cooker when you look at the pictures. (laughs) Um, The high temperature cycles take about six to seven hours, and the low temperature because there's different kinds of units that you can get there's two specific high temperature units that you could use or there's one low temperature unit and Mm -hmm. i guess maybe it's the price difference and they use different pressure and stuff as well so high pressure six to seven hours or high temperature low temperature takes about 10 to 12 hours so you can only do maybe two people in a day with the low temperature, you can do several in a day with the high temperature. After all that's done, the water is cycled out and there's a rinse cycle. And what is left is inorganic remains. It's the hip replacements. The hip replacements, all the, the metal and stuff like that, but also your bones. Okay. Stuff that, you know, isn't gonna yeah. biodegrade, I guess. Well, I mean, those do biodegrade eventually. but. The, the inorganic minerals of your bones. Like, I don't think it even looks much like bone mm-hmm. by the time you get there. The process completely destroys all DNA, pathogens, prions, all that stuff. Completely gone, just like regular cremation. And the ash that is left, because those inorganic remains are then pulverized or processed to become a powder. Mm. And, and it is very powdery. It, it's like a white or tan powder as opposed to the gray, white, flaky stuff. You can tell when you're looking at cremains what you're looking at. It looks like ash from a fireplace or something like that. Whereas aquamation, it just looks like powder. Mm. How Like the mass that's left compared to... You get 20% more of your loved one back than you would with cremation. Wow! I don't know why. I guess because less of your inorganic remains are destroyed. Because cremation, if you leave it in there, I mean, it really vaporizes everything. So, yeah, you get 20% more ash returned to the family. Interesting. There's no burning of fossil fuels. The energy it uses is pretty much it, you know, when the cycle is going on. It's 90% energy savings compared to a flame-based cremation. They take 90% less energy plugged into your wall than the furnace for the cremation. Any medical implants are left shiny and clean. You can't reuse them because I, I asked in that group once if you can reuse because titanium implants are expensive, man. Like hip replacements and knees and stuff. And, and I was like, well, can you reuse them, you should be able to. It's just metal. You can sterilize it and throw it into somebody else. But they explained to me that that is not possible because it does kind of biodegrade and like warp and stuff like that. Just enough to make it Just enough to make it completely useless. So they recover it at the aquamation place and it's given to metal recycling facilities. So it's all still recycled. (laughs) 
And pacemakers, this is kind of a big deal. When you cremate somebody with a pacemaker, it has to be removed. So during the embalming or autopsy or something like that, usually there's actually a separate fee because they have to go back in and remove the pacemaker before cremation. And then they can cremate the body. So there's, I mean, it's usually like an extra step and you have to pay for that because the batteries in the pacemaker could explode and completely fuck up your system. So, and, and it poses a risk to whoever is running the system. With aquamation, that is not the case. There's, the temperatures are not high enough to explode the batteries. So the pacemaker's just sitting there at the bottom of the tank when you're done. Mm. I was gonna ask if the alkaline lye or whatever it is. I'm sure it makes the batteries useless or makes the, the, the units useless, but, but it doesn't- explode. No, no explosions. Right on. <laughs> okay, in my notes it says, okay, the mercury problem. Um, on average, there are 2.5 grams of mercury in our teeth. Mercury vaporizes at 674.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Cremation shoots it right into the air because, you know, that's thousands of degrees Fahrenheit. I don't remember the number. Aquamation doesn't go above 300. The mercury stays bound in your teeth and therefore ends up in the ash. So, you know, I mean, you shouldn't be playing around with the ash anyway, but it's not like, it's not in an unsafe amount. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it was already in your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> when they're finished with the water and the cycle, where does the water go? Sewer. Okay. Or recycling, Some one of the two. I, I didn't write it down because I didn't understand it all the way. I don't think they reuse it per, because that would get fucking gross after a minute. So it's probably just processed and put in the sewer like every other water ever. Okay. Just like, you know, dishwashers and... <laughs> and washing machines and stuff. Okay, cool. At the current rate of cremation, the baby boomer generation will contribute, this is going to wow you right out, 190,148.7 pounds of mercury into the atmosphere. Whoa. Yeah, because the cremation rate is so high now, it's like over 50% of disposition rates, and baby boomers have had a lot of work done on their teeth. <laughs> And so yeah, they're uh, they're gonna contribute a lot of mercury to the atmosphere if they decide to be cremated. And that's just in the US. Other countries with higher cremation rates, probably using the same dental techniques. Yeah, man, it's it's gonna get bananas. That's gonna add up. This is actually in this I don't know about. It's supposedly even more ecologically friendly than natural or green burials as a whole because even though water and energy are used for the process, the recovery of metals in the body closes the energy gap. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I guess the carbon footprint is smaller. Right. Yeah, the, the metals are all recycled so they don't have to be remined and, you know. So, you know, that's up for debate, I personally think. <laughs> Surprisingly, this technology has been in use at universities and in labs for disposing animals and human bodies donated to science since 1995. Wow. This is the first we have heard of it, and they have been using it since the 90s. The, the funeral industry complex is keeping us down. Well, that's the thing. The, the, it's new to the funeral industry complex. It's not new to science. Right. The science people were keeping it from, or maybe the funeral people were like, <laughs> so where is it legal? Oh, hold on, we'll get there. Okay, um, I've got more stuff. <laughs> the first pet facility was opened in 2007. The first funeral homes to start using it started in 2011. Yeah, and there's the pet unit, the Pet 550, can hold up to 24 pets in individual compartments and with a max capacity of 550 pounds. So they don't all mix because they're all in their individual compartments and it's very efficient. I know that's a bummer, but at the same time, it's so efficient. I'm sorry, I can't get over it. We cremate them together in this country unless you pay for profit. Exactly. So they're still getting. Yeah, all the human systems, 500 pounds are the limit, although custom tanks can be made. They're all single body units. 
Bioliquidator is the same thing, except the unit is mobile or stationary and is used for agricultural applications, like... Portions. Yeah, when your cow dies yeah. and stuff like that. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Unfortunately, aquamation is illegal in 30 states. Wow! I don't even know which states it is legal. I know, like, Vermont. Um, I know it is in North Carolina because I looked it up, and the only aquamation facility for humans in North Carolina is in Shelby. Well, she- Shelby's a hop and a skip. Yeah. It's like three hours away. <laughs> but still, you know, it could be worse. It could be, like, Wilmington or something. Right. Unfortunately, it's illegal because of cultural concerns. Basically, it skeezes people out. Mm. to do this like it used to skeeze people out to cremate, like it used to skeeze people out to embalm. A misrepresentation, if you think the scene, I want to say it was like the first episode or something like that? Maybe not the first episode. Anyway, in Breaking Bad, they tried dissolving a body and the whole thing went awry because Jesse didn't follow instructions and get a plastic tub. He put the body in his bathtub and the acid and it was an acid not a base um ate through his bathtub and everything fell through the bathtub the floor and into the basement and yeah it's fucking disgusting i saw that episode i was like you fucking idiot he told you to get a plastic tub because it won't eat through the plastic but again that was acid and also movie magic (laughs) like acid doesn't work that fast and doesn't have the biting power, or the, the acid they used anyway. But this is an alkali process, not not an acid process. The concerns over wastewater, you asked what happens to it. Basically it says any municipality can process the water just like it does sewage. Thanatologist Cole Empari points out that the blood from embalmed bodies goes down the drain into municipal sewers just like everything else, so this isn't a big deal. The water from aquamation, also not going to be a problem. Especially since it's already sterilized. Mm -hmm. The blood from embalming, not sterilized. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But gets processed just the same. It's in all our municipal water. So yeah, that's aquamation. I'm completely, utterly fascinated by it. I saw the pictures of the units and the website that I was on, they were selling it. They were the manufacturers. And it totally seemed like a doable thing to just buy an aquamation unit and put it in your basement or whatever. <laughs> that is not true. Obviously, there's permits and whatnot you gotta have. So I was like, I could like do a side hustle and <laughs> aquamate people's pets. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, now that we've covered aquamation, I'll cover terramation and then we'll work out to our other options. Yes, I am in love with the idea of terramation. Me too, I'm so on it right now. So, terramation is currently legal in only three states. That is such bullshit. It is bullshit, which are Washington, Colorado, and Oregon. Supposedly, Massachusetts, Illinois, California, and Maine are currently considering it. But I like to hope that on a big enough timeline, terramation could be global. Terramation, as you know, is basically human composting. And it only uses an eighth of the energy of burial or cremation. And it saves one metric ton of carbon from entering the environment. A whole metric ton. A whole metric ton. That's equivalent to CO2 emissions of driving 2,500 miles or something. Or like over... A thousand pounds of coal that's the same equivalent carbon so terramation has four phases you mentioned that your aquamation stuff came from manufacturers of water pods the systems yes well in terramation the all the research I found was from people that provided the service of you know, oh, okay cool so phase one is the kind of like laying in that's when they will put the body in a vessel with a bunch of organic material and the organic material is kind of like a mix of alfalfa and straw and sawdust. Evidently alfalfa as it starts to break down has a lot of nitrogen in it mm-hmm. and that's a really good food for the microbes that are kind of and encouraging. Goats, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry I feed alfalfa to my goats. Uh, and goats. <laughs> well they'll be ready to go when it's time to tear <laughs> make your gut. Anyway. 
So phase two is the terramation itself. That's when the oxygen is pushed into the vessel. That oxygen is what is required to like activate the microbes in the body to start doing their job. And that's how we eventually get to the transformation of the body back into more organic matter. Three weeks into the process, the vessel will start to be rotated to distribute moisture. 14 to 21 days in is when the process has started to raise the temperature of the body. And with every raise of the temperature, the transformation and the breaking down ramps up. So. Okay. Phase three is what they consider curing. This is when at four weeks and the body will be transferred into the soil. And this is when the screening process begins. This is when the body will be screened for inorganic material to be recycled, like hip implants, stents, metal plates, stuff like that. And after the four week mark and after the curing, the soil will sit for like another 30 days before phase four. And then at phase four, this is when the soil gets returned to the families if the families desire it. The amount of soil that's returned to the family depends on the weight of the body. So for instance, a 200 pound body will get around 600 pounds of organics added to their phase one and phase two process, which will break down to around 500 pounds at the end of the process. So at that point, they'll get like a cubic yard of compost and that's returned to the family. The soil can be donated elsewhere for gardens and trees and whatever. And at that point, families can decide to choose to keep the total amount of the soil or they can scatter it wherever they want to to aid the environment. There's no like limitations on where human compost soil could be. Right, because it's just It's dirt. just soil. Yeah, it's just soil at this point. And that's what terramation is. I am so in love with terramation. I want to be terramated after being used at the body farm. Right. I don't, I, they don't do that, unfortunately. But somebody needs to make it happen. That just makes sense. Right? So we're going to refer to this episode, even though we fucked it up. That episode, we have to redo it because of technical difficulties. We did interview a death doula, and she is the mother of one of my good friends. And while we were there interviewing her, Jen told her mom that she was going to just compost her and throw her in the garden. I was like, oh, you can! Yeah, she can. <laughs> she she can. can totally do that. And Ani lives in a place where termination is legal. Legal, yeah. So it's, like, feasible. If, if she were to be here, there's nothing that says you can't just plop grandma in the earth. Right. But if she's there, she can go through the whole... The whole process, process and the... the dirt, sacks of dirt can just be transferred back to the garden. Very cool. That's really cool. Jen, if you're listening, you can, totally, <laughs> you can totally do that, even though your mom said she had other plans, but if those fall through, backup plan is terramation. <laughs> so outside of aquamation and terramation, we have a few other options. We are going to talk about shallow graves and pine boxes and wicker coffins and fabric shrouds. I'll let you start with uh, wherever you want to start. I've got shrouds. Okay. Awesome. So, the practice of burial shrouds dates back to ancient Egypt and early Native American cultures. Early Christians even did it to save on materials, but still present the dead in a respectful manner. Jewish burials still often utilize shrouds called taharim or tahara. Muslim and Hindu practices also use shrouds, but in a much stricter sense, like there's a lot more preparation of the shroud itself, and it's done directly after washing and preparing the body. And for instance, the shroud is meticulously handmade and washed a certain number of times in scented water. Mm. As part of green burials, funeral homes can help direct families to professional shroud makers or artisans if they don't want to do it themselves. Shrouds are also called winding sheets, grave clothes, cloth, tahara, and kafan. Tahara are the Jewish, kafan are the Muslim mm. shrouds. And if you've ever seen the TV show on Netflix called The Gift, it's set in Turkey, and I think Turkey is largely Muslim. And every funeral in that show, 
they used shrouds and just put them directly into the ground. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that shrouds were still a thing. <laughs> so that was eye-opening. So doing this research, that was what I thought of. Shrouds are typically made of cotton or linen. In the green burial community, shrouds can be any natural, preferably organic material that will reduce down into soil, including organic cotton, hemp, wool, stuff like that. Thought is put into what dyes or treatments the fabric has gone through. You want to avoid fabric paints that, you know, are metallic or anything like that. Lacing grommets, zippers, buttons, none of that. No, you don't want to use any of those. If one has to improvise a shroud for a sudden death or something like that, you can use linen tablecloths or household silks. Always keep in mind, recycle, reduce, reuse, you know, if that's, I mean, just use your blankets and your sheets if that's what you gotta do. Shrouds can be sewn, folded, wrapped, woven, made of the deceased's old shirts stuff like that. Remember when you were doing the, the heavy metal t-shirt quilt? Mm -hmm. Like you could turn that into your own shroud if you wanted. That'd be pretty dope actually. <laughs> Some will have cloth handles or come with a basket or even have sleeves incorporated into the pattern for body boards. All of them usually have lowering straps. Jewish Tahara and Muslim Kafan are multi-piece shrouding garments and there are differences according to the gender of the deceased. This time, I can see why. I didn't understand what sex mattered for aquamation, but for this, considering the cultures, not shocked at all that there are gonna be differences. And we will delve further into this when we do specifically Jewish funeral customs and specifically Muslim funeral customs, because we'd be here all day. I gotcha. And like you said, green cemeteries are going to have their own guidelines. Canadian Integrative Death Education and Alternatives. I have the link in the show notes. They offer patterns for shroud making. Really? There's like four different types at least. Nice. Including the Muslim one. So yeah, that's pretty cool. That is very cool. If you're new to shrouding, it is actually suggested to practice on a living person. Not only can the dead not assist you in any way... <laughs> <laughs> but making it a group activity could actually be fun and bring levity to a usually dire situation. Especially if you're working with someone who is at the end of life and they're aware of it. Maybe they want to, you know, have a shrouding party so that their family or friends or whoever's going to shroud them knows what they're doing. I could see that wigging people out at first, but I could also see it being a very comforting ritual. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that was actually, when I read that, I got all emotional, and I, that was the point where I was like, okay, maybe I, I don't want to just be at the body farm anymore, because <laughs> there's just something really beautiful about shrouding. Uh, shrouding involves a lot of wrapping, lifting, rolling, tucking, so you definitely don't want to be doing it for the first time at someone's funeral <laughs> or before someone's funeral mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, the woman that wrote this article that I was reading said that it was akin to swaddling a baby and I was like oh that sucks because I suck at <laughs> swaddling babies I could not swaddle either of my sons I swear that they hated it but I kind of think that they didn't hate it as much as they hated it when I did it the thing though when you're swaddling a baby though is babies are so tiny and fragile and you're afraid to hurt it and also their discomfort if you're shrouding a dead body right you can tuck them in as tight as you want like nobody's gonna complain you're not going to kill them and right? the surface area is bigger so it's not as delicate. i just i thought that was i just thought it was a funny mental image yeah because <laughs> it's like shrouded at the beginning shrouded at the end but yeah nurses could swallow my babies i could not like couldn't do it so i guess if I'm going to shroud somebody, I'm going to have to practice. <laughs> like, a lot. Diane Stander is the woman who wrote the article I got all this information from, and she offers this advice. Don't rush. Use leaves, pine needles, sand, 
and dried lentils or aromatic herbs tucked into a bit of cloth or a little pillowcase placed under the head inside the shroud. They won't notice, but your heart will be at ease. So, you know, they got a little pillow, and maybe it smells nice. Breathe so you can feel the life beat in your body, and sing, thank, weep, bless, and generally be yourself. It's going to be okay. Oh, I love that. Me too. Oh, honey. (laughs) And the Green Burial Project has many lists of resources for all your green burial needs, including shrouds. So you can find shrouds for sale on the links in that list. But I did go through that list, and some of those links don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And some of the Etsy artisans, you can buy a shroud on Etsy, mm-hmm. but some of them didn't work anymore. So that is shrouding. I love that. That's very me too. heartfelt. Okay, well, I get to be the, the more morbid one. Um, <laughs> when we were talking about other options, we briefly touched on shallow graves and shallow graves are used in conjunction or can be used in conjunction with all of these other methods mm-hmm. so fabric shrouds wigger all of that so the reason that we do shallow graves comes back to decomposition and decomp time is obviously affected by soil and temperature and other factors humidity will slow down decomp whereas exposure to oxygen will speed it up and so, in my research, I found out that an embalmed body usually lasts up to 10 years, but it can also last from three, as little as three, or as to high as 100 years, depending on the variety of factors that I just talked about, like humidity and stuff. Wow. The size of the body, acidity, and moisture of the burial ground, even the body's clothes at the time of burial, depth of the grave will also impact it. And so, the shallower the grave, the quicker decomposition. So obviously, the deeper the body, the slower the rate. Mm -hmm. This said that every increase of 10 degrees Celsius doubles the rate of decomposition. And so when it comes to shallow graves, bodies will be wrapped in biodegradable shrouds or wicker or any other natural fiber and will be surrounded with leaves and pine needle mulch and just allowed to do its thing naturally. Three and a half feet is shallow enough to be within the area where active burial and insects provide the best decomposition. Okay. And I think I already mentioned this earlier, but I'm not sure. In North Carolina, the top of the encasement has to be at least 18 inches below the surface of the ground. But, like we've turned So that would put you at about three feet dug. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously all states have their own ordinances and codes, so before you jump on top of the shallow graves, you might want to check your area. Yeah, like New Jersey, they have to be at least five feet. There has to be at least four and a half feet between you and, and the soil. Yeah. So... With pine box burials. You want me to do pine boxes? Yeah, sure. All right, I'll do pine boxes. There's not a lot to say. Uh, They can be simple. They can be ornate. Usually pine. They don't have to be pine. They can be other types of wood, as long as they're not exotic woods, because then that's not a green burial. And they have to be unfinished and untreated so that they will also break down and decompose with the body. No vault or concrete liners are used with pine box burials and most often the deceased are not embalmed if they are embalmed they cannot be put in a green burial space but they can still have natural burial there are many 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 companies and artisans that make pine box coffins to the point you can order them from walmart really yep when i was googling it first page of google they're like you can order oh god it was like the eco 2 or something like that on the walmart website it was $60 more expensive than buying it from the direct website for the Eco 2 and the Eco 1 pine boxes. Like, if you go just to their website, it's $60 cheaper than buying from Walmart. But Walmart does sell that brand. So is this like a kit that you put together yourself? No. It's just a full-blown... No, it's the box. You can buy kits that, you know, you can... Be part of, like, you know, an Ikea pine box or something like that. You can buy the kits. But a lot of them come 
completely constructed and you just slide it open mm-hmm. and then put your deceased in there and slide it shut. In fact, if there's any wood glue or metals or stain or anything like that, they cannot be used in the green burial space. So that it's probably going to be tongue and groove or wooden pegs mm. or something like that. But there's a lot of pine boxes that you can buy online. It was really kind of fascinating. And some of them are really pretty. I think the idea behind building your own casket would be very cool. And I mean, yes, it could be sad, but like if you knew that you were terminal or something, mm-hmm. it could be a whole cathartic process for you. And you could involve people close to you, similar to the shrouding thing. That could be an option. There are workshops in HCC. Really? Yes. At least there was one semester because I saw it in the brochure and I was like, holy shit, that's awesome. That's amazing. (laughs) But yeah, they had build your own box workshop. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And I know a lot of people purchase coffins Mm -hmm. ahead of time. I know Popcorn Sutton had his coffin sitting in his attic for like a decade before he died. So with wicker coffins, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, until today, I didn't know that wicker coffins were a thing. That was one of the first green burial things I'd heard about. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm just sheltered. You know this. <laughs> well, that and we go down different rabbit holes in the macabre. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. So obviously there's a difference between natural wicker and synthetic wickers. Obviously, you're not going to use synthetic wickers in natural burials, but both can be made into biodegradable, sustainable, produced willow, bamboo, reed, seagrass, wicker. Willow is the most commonly one used because it's so fast growing, and just like the pine box thing, they have DIY wicker assembly coffins that lets you participate in building your own wicker coffin. Most biodegradable wicker materials, like bamboo and willow, will take around three or four years for the coffin to disintegrate or to decompose. And also, wicker coffins can also be used for cremation, since there are no metal components or anything, and so that means everything's suitable for cremation. I find that weird. Right. I mean, I guess you could use I think that's just about cost. I don't think if you're cremating, you have any care about ecological right because they are significantly less expensive than regular boxes but they're more expensive than cardboard so i don't know (laughs) i think probably the idea of cardboard makes people feel like you don't care about the body or you're just being Mm -hmm. you know whereas wicker it's like a hand woven thing that somebody put care into and it gives you the illusion that you did more than just put them in a cardboard box right but like you said, you can buy a wicker coffin from like twelve to fifteen hundred dollars a coffin, whereas traditional wood coffins range from twenty five all the way up to ten thousand dollars. God, can you why? Imagine? Why would you be in a ten thousand dollar box that you're just gonna put in the ground and you're? I don't oh. get it either. One of my Rich good people, friends, man. her coffin, I remember, she had a pink glitter, and we were in our late twenties. But she had a pink glitter, very glittery, very pink, very, very pink coffin. <laughs> and I was just so distracted by it during the funeral. I was like, I don't know, sis. Like, this is glitter. This is, I didn't, pink and glitter? I don't know. Choices were made. <laughs> Choices were made. It sounds like you think that the people that picked that for her didn't know her well. Or knew old her. Right. So yeah, is that everything? Um, oh my god. I think... Well, good golly, Miss Molly. So... Oh, I have Sky Burial. Oh, what? Um, Sky Burial's a thing? Sky Burial is a thing. So we're going to cover this more when we do Asian traditions. But it is illegal in America, of course. Mm. But Sky Burial is really what it sounds like. You're just left to the elements. In Tibet, they don't even put you on anything. They put you on top of a mountain or on a cliff shelf and just let nature take its course. You're feeding vultures and there's a lot of them. It's called excarnation. 
when you are devoured by scavenger animals. This is the most common method of disposition in Tibet. It's also practiced in Mongolia and some provinces of China and in Mumbai, where the Zoroastrians practice it. Oh. Their sky burials are slightly different. It involves an actual structure that they have built for that purpose. Uh, we'll get into that when we do those areas of the world specifically. The closest you can get to a sky burial in America is to be donated to a body farm. So I guess technically I'm doing a sky burial. In San Marcos, Texas, there's a specific study in the Forensic Anthropology Center involving vultures. And they actually get requests from people, you know, writing out their wills and stuff like that, that they want to donate themselves specifically to the vulture study. And to the point where I think there's like a waiting list or something. <laughs> they're like, they're like, sorry, vulture study all full. You can donate yourself elsewhere. Do they have a crow study? I don't think so but I'm sure they study the crows with the vultures it's just one part of Texas like I'm sure crows are gonna eat me when I'm over at Cullowin I'm not letting anything eat me in Texas fuck Texas fuck Texas <laughs> so if you do want a sky burial you have to die in Mongolia or China or Tibet and if you die in Mumbai you have to be part of that religion uh. Zoroastrianism for them to consider doing a sky burial for you. Just keep in mind, and this is becoming a huge problem there actually, tourists will be hiking up the mountain to gawk at your rotting corpse being eaten by vultures. This is a thing, when we cover sky burials, I will be talking way more in depth about this because I have feelings, and a lot of them. I am a very morbidly curious person, and nah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's not just them dumping bodies up there you know they're not just because they have nowhere else to put you they do this in tibet because the ground is too rocky to bury anyone and also in buddhism you have to wait i was gonna save this for the buddhist episode but they basically do like a star chart for your death <laughs> and based on that star chart they figure out when your soul is going to leave your body after your soul has left your body and they are certain of that, then they can bury or cremate the body. Because you know how people think Buddhists never cremate? They can if there's nothing in there anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that is why sky burial is just so convenient for them. Because then they don't have to worry about it. They just put you... But they put you up there with ceremony. They're not dumping you. That is technically their graveyard. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean... Right. So, yeah, I have issues with that. We have one more option on the horizon. It's a lot. And honestly, it seems like more work than it's worth, especially with aquamation around. But there's something called promeshin. Basically, you're being freeze-dried. The method was developed by a Swedish biologist named Susan Y. Masek. It's still in the testing development phases, so it's not available to customers or anything like that. But basically... They spray you down with liquid nitrogen to cryogenically freeze you at negative 320.8 Fahrenheit degrees. The remains are then vibrated for a few minutes until it disintegrates. <laughs> and then these particles are put into a vacuum chamber to extract all the water. After that, all minerals and metals are removed from the particles. This is where promation and aquamation differ because what's left behind is organic. Mm -hmm. It's just freeze-dried. <laughs> so yeah, like, you know, astronaut ice cream. <laughs> Same deal. The remains at the end of that process are then sealed in a biodegradable bag to be buried, which takes up significantly less room because they only need like one square foot. And then after about six months, everything is just soil under there anymore. There's still a lot of testing and whatnot to go along. And do you think there's something missing from this discussion? Maybe. What haven't we talked about that we see lots of memes for and infographics and stuff like that? I don't know, but I know you're going to tell me. <laughs> you know how Luke Perry was buried? 
I don't remember. The actor, Luke Perry. He, unfortunately, we know he suffered a massive stroke in 2019. And per his request, I guess before that happened, he was buried in an infinity suit. Yeah. Infinity suits are, they were created by J. Rim Lee, who is an artist slash entrepreneur and who studied mycora mediation, which is fungal assisted metabolic decay. And she came up with the concept of a mushroom burial suit, which is a great concept. She says that she used her own hair, skin, and fingernails to feed mushrooms until she found the best mushroom that breaks down the toxins accumulated in the body and whatnot. And it turns out it's a hybrid of shiitake and oyster. And you could have purchased the suit on koeo.com, C-O-E-I-O.com, except that website is no longer available because it turns out this whole fucking thing's bullshit. I was so mad. I, because I, I didn't know that part at first. Like, I just was researching the suit. I researched for like an hour or two into the wee hours in the morning. Like, it was fucking two o'clock in the morning. I think that's why I have such disdain. I hate on a disdain for, for these stupid ass mushroom suits because it turns out it's all crap. I should have, I saw that article too. And I was like, no, I'll come back to that article after I found out. <sighs> yeah. So, and you can't find them on Instagram anymore. You can find the, you can find the Instagram account and all the comments on the posts are just people like, you're so full of shit and you owe people so much money and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it was... Thanks. (sighs) So basically it claims to break down or remediate all the toxins that are in the human body that would otherwise still be there if you did a green burial. This is not really the case. You will still, basically it breaks down the same. Mm -hmm. The mushrooms don't make it any faster. And it even says that when you use the mushroom suit, you have to be buried four feet deep. And that's a foot past the sweet spot. (laughs) You know, the Goldilocks zone where all the, the good decomp takes place. Yeah, so even if it did make decomp faster, this could potentially result in more nitrogen than the plants around the burial site can use and then leaches into the waterways and you get algae blooms. Okay. Yeah, so it could potentially be worse for the ecology than than benefit from. So was this a cash grab or was it just... It sounds like... Honestly, she seemed very earnest to me, but I'm also really gullible, so I can't tell. Okay. (laughs) Basically, it could have been just a cash grab. That was a lot of effort for a cash grab, but also these suits were like $1,500 a pop, so it must have worked for her. She did a TED Talk, like, demonstrating the suit and everything, and... Also, we've already determined that decomposition is affected so much by how ever many things has there been enough mushroom suits to prove that it's i mean no this so it, could. it couldn't possibly have been used enough for enough studies to say whether or not it was working so it could have it could but they took this woman down yeah their instagram account only has 18 posts on it and it's all people saying you know you treated everyone poorly and you should pay back people and stuff like that. I did, however, get to stumble upon someone called the Modern Mortician, who is adorable, and on Instagram, and she, (laughs) I put, seems to work tirelessly exposing stuff like this. She has also taken a whack at the mycelium egg tree people, and also teaches us why tattooing with ashes doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, I remember hearing about that, that you you can't tattoo with ashes because the particles are too big to go into your skin. Mm. So the ashes never actually make it into your skin, just the ink. Yeah. Good to know. Right? <laughs> Let's not... So, yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. Like, I, I do want to look more into the mycelium egg or pod 
tree thing because surely that works at least a little bit. <laughs> you know, I mean, the tree on top part at least. I feel like any any progress we can make is going to be better than dumping 4.3 million gallons of embalming fluid into the waterways and the yeah. We'll get there one day, maybe. Hopefully. But yeah, for now, my plan is guy burial at the body farm, and hopefully by then they'll be aquamating whatever's left. Because <laughs> I don't know what they do. I know once your bones, sometimes you go into a drawer for later use and study and like being classes and stuff like that for educational purposes. But also they probably just incinerate or use large mass graves, which... I'm okay with the mass grave, I guess. I hope they don't incinerate me just because that's a lot of CO2 and apparently mercury that <laughs> will vaporize into the ether. <laughs> so yeah, I hope they they do aquamation by the time I die. Hopefully you've got some time. Yeah, right? Hopefully. Oh, oh my god, that was a long episode. <laughs> As always, you can find us at Instagram at Death and Desserts Podcast. On Twitter, at death underscore desserts. On TikTok, as death and desserts. On Facebook, as death and desserts podcast. All our links, including our website, are available on our Instagram bio. Join us in two weeks, because we will finally be interviewing Beth, who is a palliative care nurse. All the research was done by Zaria and myself. All art and editing is done by Zaria. Our theme song is from Kevin McLeod. And our dessert. Our dessert, thank you, came from Barber's Orchard in Waynesville, North Carolina. Remember, life is short. Have dessert. <laughs>